Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For a century, doctors fighting infectious diseases have relied on a simple idea. When you find a positive case, find the people that the patient might have exposed. This is called contact tracing. Contact tracing is hard enough with, say, HIV, where someone who tests positive might know the names and phone numbers of their recent sexual partners. But with coronavirus, it's a different story. The disease is airborne, contagious, and it can spread for days before a patient begins to show symptoms, making it hard to figure out who might have been exposed. That's what put the world on lockdown. Now, doctors say that contact tracing, along with widespread rapid testing and social distancing, is our only way out. In the U.S., states and companies are trying to meet that need. Massachusetts has hired 1,000 people to start a contact tracing program. And Google and Apple have collaborated on an app that uses Bluetooth to keep track of who you run into all day. Which, for the average New Yorker, might be as many as 75 people, not including contacts on public transit. Today on the show, we're going to hear from a country where COVID-19 tracing has worked, and an American city that's about to try it. I'm Henry Gorbar, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So what does it look like to spend a day in Seoul right now? Honestly, it's business as usual. This is Raphael Rashid. He's a journalist in Seoul. It's like any other day, especially at the moment. The worst is over, and right now I can do anything I want. South Korea didn't flatten the curve. They never had any curve at all. On Wednesday, they even had an election with record turnout. The shops are open, the coffee shops are open, restaurants are open. Yesterday was a public holiday because we had voting, but everyone was in the streets holding hands, going to coffee shops. The weather was nice. and it's Springtime. Yeah, it's as if nothing had happened. And I kind of feel a bit guilty because I can see, you know, friends and family abroad. It's a completely different story. Are you posting? Are you posting on your Insta? You know, here I am in the pause. <laughs> yeah, I, to a movie. I, I do feel a bit bad posting these these like normal life stories because I know it's not the case for everyone else around the world. But definitely, we've seen uh, a lot less cases in Korea. I think now we're hovering at um, 
about 20 to 25 new cases a day. So it's very, very minimal. This is minimal because of South Korea's sweeping contact tracing program, which the country developed as a response to another viral outbreak in 2015. Interviews, investigations, local alerts, everything was in place when COVID arrived, and participation is mandatory. The South Korean government has been very good at tracking and tracing down all of the confirmed cases of coronavirus in the country. At the beginning, you know, once someone was confirmed and they they got their positive result, the government would ask them questions. Where were you? What time? Where did you go? What was your route? Like being like being interviewed by the FBI or something like that. Yeah, literally interrogated. Um, but the problem is, I mean, some people were very good at it, but uh, at giving answers, but some people just forgot where they were for the past few days. And I think some people actually refused to say where they were. <laughs> so when we have a pandemic, the government is allowed to look into your private records, your credit card records, your GPS tracking. So they're allowed to get a lot of information from you. And actually it facilitates the process of finding out where you were. So what the government does with this information is they compile it and then they make what they call an emergency broadcast. So for example, if someone in your area comes out as a positive coronavirus case, then everyone in that area will receive a text message on their phone saying, be careful, there was a confirmed case in your area. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't really opt out of these messages. They just come on your phone and they make a massive siren. And everyone's phone, if you're in a coffee shop, everyone's phone goes off at the same time to say, alert. It won't tell you their name or address, but it will tell you their gender, their age. It might even tell you what kind of job they do. Uh, And it will tell you what route they took. So they went to this movie theater. They went to this coffee shop at this time. They took this bus. They took this subway. It will give you all the information. And then it will usually give you a link and say, if you want more information, please log on to this website. And it will lead you to a website that will give you even more information. There was a point when South Korea was confirming hundreds of new cases a day. If you were in a big city, this must have been quite frenetic. You must have been getting alerts all the time saying case here, case there. Absolutely. We were getting maybe 20 alerts a day, maybe 30. It really depends if, you know, what what area you're in. And now it's getting better because we've got less cases, but uh, definitely a month ago or six weeks ago, it was was a bit overwhelming. Right. And and so you're saying that when you were in a public space, you would get them all the time. And, and it's weird because it seems like on the one hand, it would make people nervous. On the other hand, it's referring to something that might have happened three or four days in the past, right? So then it, then it's up to you to trace your trajectory and figure out if you might have been in the same place at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can just go back in time yourself and ask yourself, was I at this place at this time? And if so, how long was I in that place? And you can determine whether you potentially were at risk or not. Right. I suppose that your location is only being revealed by the government if you test positive. So uh, I'm wondering 
what it's like for people who do test positive. Is there a stigma associated with that? Do they feel vulnerable having all their um, locations broadcast like this? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You know, it just says Mr. Kim, 58, who lives in this area. And, you know, there are there are hun- hundreds, if not thousands of people with the same surname um, in in any given area. I'm sorry, so, they, they release your name? Uh, yeah, they will release. In Korea, names are usually three syllables. Your, your surname and your forename is a combination of three syllables. So your first syllable will be revealed like Kim. And it's like Kim... Anne, Park. But the thing is, these names are so common in Korea. Most people have the same surnames. So it's very difficult to tell. I see. If you if you are Korean, because everyone is a Mr. Park, everyone is a Mr. Kim. If it were you. Yeah, exactly. So that is kind of, in a way, it's okay if you're Korean. Although if you live in a very small village, maybe it's very easy to guess who it is. If you're a foreigner, it's interesting because they release the nationality, which I'm not too sure why they need to give the nationality. So, for example, if it were me, it would be Rafa dot dot. So it wouldn't give my full name, but it would give the beginning of my name. It would mm-hmm. give my age. I think it would give my profession and it would give my area. Oh, and it would give my, yeah, my nationality. So not many people can fit that criteria. There's probably, I'm the, probably the only one. And people would probably guess immediately that it's me. How do you think people in South Korea feel about giving up their privacy in this situation? Honestly, I don't think people think much of it. I mean, yeah, they do understand that it is a breach of privacy and in theory a breach of uh, your human rights. But many South Koreans believe that safety comes above your privacy. I suppose it's also partly that they have faith in this system. It's not just that the it's not just that the system works on a technical level, but that people um, feel confident about going about their normal lives, even if there is a surge in cases, they, 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 they assume the government has it under control. Yeah. Interestingly, um, it wasn't necessarily always the case. At the beginning of the outbreak, there was a lot of criticism, especially from um, the opposition party who criticized the government and the president for not closing the borders from day one. But things changed when it turned out to be the opposite abroad, when there were thousands of cases abroad in the US, in the UK, uh, Italy, Spain, when Koreans realized that actually the government's been doing a pretty good job in this country considering how bad it is in other countries, then the narrative changed. Um, and then uh, approval ratings for the president and the ruling party just shot up. Uh, and, and that's why I think we've seen extremely um, high uh, results and performance yesterday in the National Assembly elections, which had a record turnout and um, absolute landslide victory for the ruling party. In America, of course, things are different, disorganized. Thousands of people are dying every day. And yet, with pressure building to get people back to work, U.S. states are starting to plan for what comes next. And so is Dr. Michael Reed. He worked on contact tracing with tuberculosis in sub-Saharan Africa. Now he's trying to start something similar in San Francisco. It was one of the first places in the U.S. 
to register community transmission of COVID-19. But it has all but flattened the curve. Well, first of all, I think there's a recognition that in order to do effective contact tracing, we needed to scale the workforce beyond the Department of Public Health, that all of their professionals are tapped out doing important work, and we need more boots on the ground, so to speak. So Dr. Reed is helping out. His university, UCSF, plans to add scores of people in support of the city's public health department. Dr. Reed is coordinating this effort. One of the first things that the Department of Public Health does here in San Francisco is that they mobilize a team of disease case investigators. Sounds like a very legal term, but these folks are trained professionals who will reach out to each individual suffering from COVID-19 and, first of all, check in on their welfare. How are they doing? Are they medically stable? And then try and understand when did they fall ill and what kinds of activities did they participate in after they fell ill? In the process of that interview or investigation, the disease case investigator will enumerate all of the contacts that that individual came into contact with during that period of time when they were infectious, generating a list of contacts. It's at this point, once the initial interview is done, that Dr. Reed's team gets involved. In short, they start making calls. And and our role is, first of all, to, to highlight or educate those individuals, hey, we believe you've come into contact with somebody with COVID-19. And because of that, you're at risk yourself of developing symptoms of COVID-19. And we would like to ensure that you protect yourself from infection by staying at home, by quarantining at home for 14 days. And then we ask these folks, are you able to safely do that? And what resources do you need in order to safely self-quarantine? Sounds like South Korea, doesn't it? Well, there's two big differences. First, American doctors can't force COVID patients to cooperate. Second, San Francisco is just one city. To make contact tracing work, you need to do it at scale. We're guesstimating that in the first instance here in San Francisco, we need between 100 and 150 people that can do contact tracing if we're ever to pull back from shelter in place. What does the U.S. need? I mean, the the numbers are sort of mind boggling, but people are estimating we need between 100 and 300,000 people that can be doing contact tracing if we as a, a nation are able to effectively hold the epidemic at bay. How do you think about the number of people required to do contact tracing in proportion to new cases? So how many tracers per patient? It's it's just simple back of the envelope math right now. Um, You know, we're estimating that that each case is in close contact with between three and five other people. I think that number will probably go up as, as people go back to some degree of normality. But we're mobilizing a, a team that reflects the a five-fold increase on the number of cases so that we're able to reach out to all those cases. And then we, we sort of back into the number. If, if we're thinking that there are going to be five contacts per case, if it takes 20 minutes to get on the phone with each of those contacts, that's three an hour. How many can you do in a day? And therefore, how many contact traces do you need to do that? And that's how we sort of came up with that number in the first instance. It strikes me that um, that the potential number of contacts is three to five is based on the current shelter in place status quo. I have seen studies that when a city is functioning normally, that your average urbanite might interact with 60 to 70 
people in it. No, right. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's modeling out, the mathematical modeling suggesting, you know, much higher numbers. And if you look at the MERS outbreak, Middle Eastern respiratory virus, you know, the average number of contacts was closer to 30. So I'm absolutely aware that the figure that I'm proposing right now is modest and hence why we need to mobilize a, a workforce now so that we can anticipate an increase in the number as we return to normal at some point in the near future. Right. Even so, it seems to me that this this system is predicated on putting more emphasis on a certain type of high touch contact, which is to say a roommate or an employee, uh, a colleague with whom you you work um, in close proximity rather than, say, somebody you passed on the sidewalk on your way to work. Does that reflect your sense as an epidemiologist about where the infections are most likely to occur? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the established wisdom is that the greatest risk of transmission is is if you spend more than 10 minutes in close proximity, less than six feet from an individual who's Mm -hmm. symptomatic. And so certainly, you know, people that will automatically fall into that criteria are roommates, household contacts, and maybe your close contacts at work, depending on what kind of work you do. Are we going to be able to capture information on everybody, you know, the, the man that you stood next to on the bus or, or the individual in, in the line for the grocery store? No. In, in places where people are now taking this outbreak very seriously in their daily lives, like in, in the Chicago neighborhood where I live, you walk down the sidewalk and you're wearing a mask and you see someone else and they're wearing a mask and each party will – one party will often leave the sidewalk and walk in the street – to avoid walking within 10 feet of each other. And that has been the message we've gotten from public health officials, that you should stay six feet away from people at all times. But it sounds like if the program you're proposing is to have is to be effective in any way, it sort of relies on the assumption that actually walking by someone on the sidewalk is a pretty low-risk event. I think it is a low risk event. What mask wearing and social distancing are doing are are like recognizing that we don't have better tools in our armamentarium, right? So even though it's a very crude intervention, it's the best that we have. And maybe contact tracing adds a degree of precision that those other interventions aren't able to offer. But honestly, we need all of them because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have a an effective therapeutic intervention. And so all of these different things that are relatively crude and and insensitive in terms of reducing transition are as as good as we've got. Um, And I think this is where there may be a role for other forms of technology to enhance the precision of our contact tracing work. That made me want to ask Dr. Reed about that Apple Google tracing app. If a user later tested positive for COVID-19, the app's Bluetooth tracing could tell you where and when you came across them. Um, I, I think it has a small role, uh, and I don't want to diminish the, the 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 value of it for end users who are motivated, who want to have this information. But if you look at a similar application that was developed in Singapore, the Trace Together application, which was also voluntary, you know, only about fifteen percent of individuals used it. So I think that's one reflection. The other reflection is that the kind of app that's being proposed really relies on the individual acting of their 
own volition to 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 make a change in their lifestyle. And that's never going to replace the important role of, of of a Department of Public Health that can can reach out to you and say, hey, we know you've been infected. You need to do these things. And actually, we, we require you to do that as part of your, your social responsibility within our city. And I, I worry that those end user applications aren't ever going to fulfill that or offer that message of responsibility at a population level. Whether it's an app or an investigator retracing your steps, this whole idea only works in an environment where the disease is contained. And in the U.S. right now, we're just not ready. I think there are many cities and counties across the U.S. that are essentially thrown in the towel on contact tracing right now. They just can't do it because the, the burden of disease and their public health infrastructure is already overwhelmed. And their priority is to figure out where can we get enough PPE from? Do we have enough ICU beds? And, and can we accommodate all the people that need ventilators? I think hopefully, inevitably, almost that surge will end. And then, you know, th- those communities will come down the other side of the curve. They'll they'll have to regroup and then figure out before the next wave of infections, are we ready? Do we have case investigation and contact tracing capability? Are we able to test everybody? And can we offer those wraparound social services that seem to be really crucial if we're going to support people through the epidemic? Well, Dr. Reed, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. Dr. Mike Reed is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Rafael Rashid is a freelance journalist based in Seoul. And that's our show for today. I'm Henry Grabar. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. What Next will be back on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.